Welcome to the Human Performance Podcast. Here we talk about everything to do with human performance and how leaders and organizations can get the best out of themselves and their people. I'm your host, Alex Young. My guest on the podcast this week is Dr. Paul Shemp. Paul is a high-performance leadership expert and a University of Georgia professor and corporate consultant and has spent over 25 years conducting, presenting, and applying industry-leading research on expertise to increase individual and organizational performance. Paul has authored six books, including the award-winning Five Steps in Becoming Expert, How to Go from Business Novice to Elite Performer. Having written over 125 articles and delivered over 200 presentations in 29 countries, Dr. Shemp is an internationally renowned scholar, speaker, coach, and consultant, and has lectured at more than two dozen universities on three continents. Today, we cover some really fun topics as we dive into Paul's research behind leadership and high performance across sports and business, and we consider some of the common traits of the most effective leaders from Paul's research and interviews. So you don't want to miss this one. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Alex. It's nice to be here with you. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. And we're going to be talking about uh, a couple of topics that are very close to my heart. And, and your background is obviously uh, you know, really, really interesting, melding uh, kind of science, research, and um, you know, performance. Um, it'd be great if you could just sort of introduce yourself to everybody listening. Sure. Uh, my official title is I'm a research professor at the University of Georgia, and I run a research laboratory where we study expert sport coaches. Uh, and let me define that. These are people who are consistently successful at the highest level. And what we try to identify, Alex, is the differentiators between the really, really good ones and the average ones. What really separates the people that just seem to knock it out of the park consistently? I know that's an American baseball term. Uh, but what we also found was the things that make coaches successful also make business leaders successful. Things like, for example, and we were discussing this previously, preparing for success, communication skills, uh, feedback to players slash employees, uh, strategic planning, decision making. I mean, much of what we are able to do is because we make the right decisions and equally important, we are able to avoid bad decisions. So those are the kinds of the things that we've been studying over the years. And so it's allowed me to work both in elite level sports, Olympics, professional um, here in university sport, but also work with businesses, things like Delta Airlines, UPS, um, General Electric, some of the global companies, if you will. So I'm really looking forward to you and I discussing this because I know we have a passion. We were just talking about, can people learn to be leaders? And, and you and I both believe absolutely. It's, a, it's, first of all, understanding what you need to do, and then how do you do it? And so I think that's kind of where we're going to have our conversations today, Alex. So what do you want to know? Let's get this started. A hundred percent. Well, I'm, I'm so excited to discuss this because, uh, you know, as well as being just obsessed with human performance in general and sports, um, I'm also a huge nerd. So any, any way where we can bring evidence-based research into any of the topics mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, we are telling people and, um, you know, how 
uh, either leadership or uh, you, you know our, our, our sort of mindset and ability is governed is, is just so powerful because uh, you know if you go to someone like Amazon there are hundreds and hundreds and thousands of books on things like leadership and um, mindset and things like that but often then they don't come from that scientific background so I think the place which would be great to start Paul would be what's been your experience as someone who is who is on the research side of performance and leadership what are some of the you know the key takeaways you've seen in your career from from that evidence-based research side Mm -hmm. well first of all um once you can kind of crack the code a little bit and get on the inside most of these people are very very successful want to share that that information uh because first of all they recognize they didn't get there alone uh they had help and they're willing to share whatever experiences, knowledge, skills that they have for other people who aspire to be good at what they do. Uh, and so that has been very rewarding to do that. Secondly, it's been interesting to see the consistencies, if you will, of the elements that make people successful as coaches and as leaders across the board, whether you're talking sports, um, doesn't matter what the sport or the businesses, same thing. Um, and so that's, that's been kind of helpful. The other thing is, um, with science being what it is today, we have a global reach. We can talk with people in Australia, for example, or in Africa, South America, and use different techniques. Uh, Zoom's been great for doing things like interviews. Uh, we also use a lot of uh, questionnaires. Uh, most recently, we've been studying online coaching because, as you know, during COVID, many of the Olympic coaches couldn't be face-to-face -face with the people that they had. And Alex, you know, this is a challenge with leaders today is because of COVID, so many people were remote and now they don't want to come back to work. At least they don't want to come back to work five days a week. So I think right. one of the, the cutting edge uh, leadership skills is the ability to lead remotely. And you were yeah. uh, discussing virtually. So um, there's just so much that's happening right now. Um, and, and that's been really quite exciting. Well, that, that's absolutely fascinating. And I think, again, it's something that blends across both sports and business because mm -hmm. without, you know, for something like coaching, which for the most part, the way we think about it is, is very obviously personal. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, we think of your coach as someone who is there analyzing and looking at everything and is with you uh the, the, the classic kind of i guess you know nfl coaches is, is making you do press-ups making you do uh you know your drop and sprints and when that turns into a remote environment you obviously lose some of that rapport you lose the body language you might even Absolutely. lose some of the, the motivational aspects mm -hmm. what, what were some of your sort of you know takeaways from that both from sports and for business leaders who might be communicating with a team remotely now yeah alex you just put your finger on the key that really makes the difference. It's you have to facilitate and develop that personal relationship because that's so critical. It's easy to do when we're in person because you can read body movements as you suggested or intonations in the language. You can see the entire environment. You need to do the same thing remotely, but you have to use different strategies. So things like, for example, uh, opening or closing with, as you and I did on this podcast, talking about personal relationships, uh, mm. you know, getting to know who these people are as people. Yes, they're employees. Yes, they're players. Yes, they're leaders, but they're still human beings. And so what are you experiencing now? What are you feeling? What are your motivations? Because Alex, I think you'll agree with me. What one of the differentiate differentiators between the truly great leaders or coaches and the average ones is the great ones know they don't lead an organization. They don't coach a sport. You lead people. You coach people. You coach people in a sport or you lead people in an organization, but it's about the people. 
And if you haven't taken the time to develop that relationship, you have no way of knowing what to say to them, how to say it, when to say it, and when to say nothing at all. And so it's in understanding the people as a leader that you really begin to get the power of being able to motivate someone in a way that's going to help them be successful, both within your organization as well as personal. You know, what do I need to do to be here? Because you'll invest in an organization, Alex, if you believe that organization is going to help you to realize the, the aspirations you have as a human being. Well, I mean, what, what a fantastic point. And, uh, you know, we, we were talking just before we started recording that I, I've just been doing quite a bit of research um, into a, a TED talk that I've, I've been asked to give. Mm. And um, I was trying, it's one of those things where I, you know, I, I wanted to give back as much as possible in a, in a very short, concise time frame. Right. And so um, w- when I sort of was, was really sort of analyzing some of my own notes and research into, uh, you know, human skills or soft skills or power skills, uh, including leadership in general, um, I think at, at what's at the core of a lot of them, even things like creativity and time management mm-hmm. is, is, is empathy and emotional intelligence oh, yeah. and, and that ability to just right. understand you know, how someone is feeling, how they're thinking, but then actually doing something. So, so you know, doing an action that, that offers value to them, that uh, aligns them if you're in a business setting to, mm-hmm. you know, your goals or in a sports setting, motivates them to, to hit their own goals. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's just so powerful. What, what, what were your sort of thoughts on, on you know, specific traits um, like something like empathy or emotional intelligence? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. In fact, we did do a study on emotional intelligence and, and we didn't find it was a differentiator in terms of, one loss record, what we found it was a differentiator with was um, team loyalty. In other words, if uh, a players, and we only did it in, in a sport context, we did it with a uh, basketball player or coaches and volleyball coaches, elite level coaches. And what we found is the players on teams with empathetic coaches, if you will, uh, or emotional intelligent leaders, they were more uh, obligated or loyal to the team. They were less likely going to leave that team for another team because they felt like they were understood. They felt like they were appreciated. They felt like the organization invested in them. The leader had a personal interest in that, and they wanted to give that back. And um, so that's really what the differentiators we found. Um, if you put the same athlete, I mean, in, in somebody with emotional intelligence or not at the elite level, you know, most of the times at the elite level, somebody's going to perform at the level that they do because it's not so much about the coach anymore. Uh, it's more about the athlete themselves. And so mm-hmm. what we find is that they'll stay longer with a coach or an organization. That was the differentiator we found at that particular level. Really interesting. And, and you mentioned um, you know, something that I obsess over on an almost daily basis uh, in terms of, uh, you know, lifelong learning and, and self-improvement, which is, you know, what really differentiates someone from being a winner and, and being a loser, um, you know, in, in your opinion and your research? One of the biggest ones is their perceptions of failure. Um, winners look at failure as an opportunity to learn. They accept it as a normal uh, part of the process of development. They don't see them. They don't see winning as an end game. They see it as a, as, as a journey. Let me give you an example. Um, it's not in sport. It's, it's actually in, uh, I don't know what you want to call Thomas Edison, but, uh, as you know, Edison invented the light bulb when he was doing, if you will, the press release, he was meeting the press to introduce the light bulb. One of the reporters said, Mr. Edison is one of the greatest inventors. And he stopped him right there. He said, I don't look at myself as a great inventor. 
what do you look at yourself as? I'm one of the world's biggest failures. In fact, and he held up the light bulb, he said, it took about 10,000 failures for me to discover the one way that this light bulb would work. So I spent, I've discovered 10,000 ways this light bulb didn't work. So what he looked at his failures as an opportunity to learn, it's not working, I need to change. Now, people who aren't that successful, the failure becomes demotivating. They, it becomes an ego bruise to them. Uh, they want to cover it up. They don't want other people to see that, you know, they made a mistake here, that they weren't perfect. And, you know, Alex, so much in our culture is really about, especially when you look at social media now, things like Facebook or Twitter, you know, people will put up this front, like my life is great. Well, it is hopefully, but, you know, there's going to be some stumbles along the way. And, and you almost have to embrace those and say, okay, here's a great opportunity to learn. And let me tell you something about great leaders is they'll allow you to make those mistakes and then they'll sit down with you and they'll say, okay, Alex, if that happens again, what would you do differently? What do you learn from this? Now, the poor leaders are going to beat you over the head and say, I'm not paying you to make mistakes. Well, you know, you're going to be afraid to take chances. You're going to be afraid to grow. And you're never going to be better tomorrow unless you change something today. And if you're afraid to change, if you're afraid to risk something, you're never going to grow. Did that answer the question? Oh, completely. And more so, I mean, I, I think it's, um, it, it's such a powerful kind of concept. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, Stanford psychology professor, Carol Dweck in her book, uh, mindset yeah. talks about yeah, both mindset. Exactly. This, this is, mm -hmm. this is the whole thing about kind of your genetic right. ability to, to, you know, embracing failure and practice. But mm -hmm. I think for things it's interesting because for things like leadership and especially I suppose for sports professionals who are in the public eye, Mm -hmm. there's that element where what they do and who they are and even for leaders where, where something like you know how someone communicates how empathetic they are is so tied to their individual personality and identity that mm -hmm. it becomes very difficult for people i suppose to critique that in the same way as right. you know, say a, a technical skill like a, a an exam score or, or you know taking a you know a, a three-pointer shot um what, what, what how do you, how do you think we can sort of look at changing that for people or, or, or do you think that's even possible? Could you ask that question just a slightly different way? Yeah, I guess make, in terms so of- So I can I, understand I, I'm- I Yeah, I, I guess, you know, I, I think in, in general, I would say people are sort of accepting of, of um, constructive feedback for technical mm -hmm. skills. So, you know, shooting a three-pointer, people mm -hmm. are, are not going to take that personally, that they're going to appreciate that's a skill they're going to continue to practice. Same with other elements of work. But mm -hmm. when you start- criticizing or, or offering critique and coaching around things like someone's communication skill or their leadership ability that's inherently a little bit more personal yeah. and people are a little bit less inclined to accept that because their their barriers kind of go up how i, I suppose what i'm asking sometimes is, it's not less inclined they're not inclined at all to accept <laughs> right. that kind of feedback yeah mm -hmm. and yeah. and people who are highly successful seek it out they, they, they don't take it personally in that you're attacking me. It's like you're helping me to grow. And even if it's put in harsh terms, they'll listen because that's really what they're after. And, and how do you develop that mindset? Uh, the only way I know, and there's maybe other ways, is that you have to create an environment as a leader or as a coach where it's okay to make a mistake. It's accepted that that's a mistake. And again, let's learn from this. So you don't feel like if I screwed up and I go to my boss, I'm going to get fired. That is absolutely the wrong environment. The environment is we're moving forward. And I'll give you an example. 
one of my clients is, I'm sure you're familiar with the National Basketball Association, the NBA, and uh, they have a leadership program, as you can imagine. Now, uh, just quickly, the NBA is is a company in and of itself. And then the professional teams, for example, like the uh, Los Angeles Lakers, the New York Knicks, Boston Celtics, those are like franchises. So they're also independent, but yet interdependent with the NBA. So I'm talking about the NBA itself. And I was hired to do some work in their leadership program, specifically on decision-making and what the commissioner's name is Adam Silver. What Adam was particularly interested in was innovative decision-making because Mm -hmm. his thought was our landscape's changing. And I'll give you just an example. Um, 80% of their revenue comes from, and I'm not sharing anything that's, um, that's confidential. 80% of their revenue comes from broadcast media. And what they've discovered about, if you will, millennials, but I think everybody, they don't like to watch commercials. And so what do you do that you can still get the the commercial revenue in there, uh, the the advertisers, but without imposing on, if you will, the game? So I'll give you two. So he wanted people to start thinking innovatively. What do we need to change? What do we need to do differently? And two things that they developed, well, they, did, they stole one from the baseball, Major League Baseball, but then they also developed another one. If you look at any NBA player today, they have a logo over their left breast. Companies will pay, I think uh, Golden State Warriors get $36 million a year from the company that has that logo. So it's a great revenue source. It's also a commercial advertisement because when you're broadcasting a game, you're broadcasting players. I mean, you do this in in the football leagues in England, right? I mean, uh, Manchester United doesn't have Manchester United across their shirt. They have whoever their sponsor is at the time. And so um, they've kind of learned that lesson. The second thing was uh, if you're at the game itself on the court, it looks like a fairly plain court. But if you're watching it on television, it's superimposed with logos from corporate sponsors. And they switch those logos during the game. And the people at the stadium never know that. The people watching TV still have exposure to that. So it's a way of let's think differently about how we're going to present this broadcast. And it requires innovative thinking on that part. And so, yeah, Adam wanted to have his people to think about uh, this. And here's what Adam said, um, because he always talks to the group before I do. He said, if we don't make mistakes, we're not trying hard enough. So I expect there's going to be mistakes. He says, I just want a couple of of wins to go along with the losses and we'll be okay. So it kind of goes to your point, you know, how do you develop that mindset? I think Adam has done a great job with the National Basketball Association. Really interesting. And and, um... you're listening to the Human Performance Podcast by Verti. If you're enjoying this episode, why not join our newsletter? When you sign up, you'll receive a copy of Level Up straight to your inbox every Thursday with the latest tips, tricks, and news about all things human performance. Head over to verti.com forward slash newsletter to sign up. That's verti.com forward slash newsletter. You can find this in the show notes. Anyway, back to the episode. I mean, slightly off topic, but that that whole... Um you know, just thinking innovatively around sports team sponsorship. It Mm -hmm. just reminds me actually of uh, when you mentioned, uh, you know, English football clubs that, um, you know, shirt sponsorship. Uh, I remember Mm -hmm. Liverpool when they won the Champions League, 
and I think I'm right in saying I'm, I might be slightly out of date here, but I think when um, the, uh, their main kind of kit sponsor um, was, um, uh, I think it was a standard chartered, one of the big kind of insurers and finance groups, their biggest uh, actual revenue as in the sponsor came when Liverpool made it to the Champions League. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's amazing that um, if you think sort of innovatively and you're, you're on a winning team, Mm-hmm. That you get all of these kickbacks along the way for, the, for you know not just the actual football team winning but actually your 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 business your sports business as well which oh is, yeah is, is yeah. amazing it is amazing yeah and you'd be surprised yeah all the revenue sources that they try to tap into um most major sports have, have really done well um economically in terms of their development uh, even sports we consider not to be professional sports like the IOC, the International Olympic Committee. I mean, they, they've got deep pockets. Um, they, th- that group knows how to make money. Let's just put it that way. And, and just, just sticking with sports, you know, your, your kind of, um, you know, your, your previous life was as a you know, performance coach for the, the sort of Swedish Golf Federation, mm-hmm. um, I think, and Ryan's saying. Um, how did you get that gig? And, and, and what were some of the things you learned <laughs> from a sport like golf? Um, it was, it was, that's a, I, I find it an interesting start. I was actually doing a research study. We were studying expert coaches, obviously. I don't even remember what, what the study was, but one of the people participating, it was sponsored by the Ladies Professional Golf Association. And one of the people who was participating is a woman named Pia Nilsson. And Pia, if you know anything about golf, was the head coach of the Swedish Golf Federation at the time uh, and also coached many of the players. Annika Sorenstam is probably her most well-known player that she coached. So during the break, um, she was trying to pick my brain because, again, uh, people who are highly successful are always looking for new information. And I was trying to pick her brain because, I mean, this level of success was phenomenal. I mean, you think about Sweden and golfers. I mean, Sweden, summer is measured in minutes. And how do they develop these great golfers? Well, so um, Pia and I were talking and I said, Pia, I'll be honest with you. You coach golf all wrong. (laughs) Now, at the time, I did not play golf. I I may (laughs) have been on a golf course maybe twice in my life. So she asked me to, to explain some, and I'll just give you one. She, I said, it's the only sport I know of where you practice on a pitch you don't play on. And, and I said, so the ability to transfer anything you've practiced on this, if you will, artificial playing area to the real setting is going to be very limited. You need to start changing the way you do this. So she said, uh, I'm stepping down and the new person coming in is Peter Matson. And Peter actually worked for the English Golf Union for a few years. Um if I got you two together, would you talk to Peter about your ideas on developing golfer performance? And I said, sure. I'm happy to do that, Pia. Well, Peter and I met. And um, two weeks later, I get a phone call from him. And he said, Paul, would you be our performance coach? And I said, Peter, I don't play golf. And he says, I'm not, I don't, I'm not hiring you to play golf. I'm hiring you to coach golfers. And so that's kind of how that went. And uh, one of the things that we did differently is we emphasized not so much the technique, which is important, but we, we were emphasizing things like decision making. You know, as you find your way around the golf course, what kinds of things are you doing? What kinds of things are you avoiding? The better your plan, the better you're able to execute. If you're just kind of hitting the ball and chasing it, probably not nearly as effective. And, and Alex, I'm sure you've come across many businesses where they just tend to do the same thing again and again and again without really thinking about, is this really the best way to do this? Do we really have a set strategy and a plan 
how do we practice the skills? How do we develop people who can really make a contribution to where we want to go? Would you, I'm going to ask you to jump in on that one because I know you've given that topic some thought. No, absolutely. I mean, absolutely fascinating. And, and I think you're at, it's very interesting because I think often bringing people in from outside of, of the sport uh, ah. with different perspectives is, yeah. is so critical um, because I think often, and, and this applies to business as well, Yes, um, it's very difficult seeing your blind spots when you're there 24-7 focusing on things. And mm-hmm. I think having those, those sort of diversity of opinions from outside your organization, whether it's a sports team, whether it's a business, is is absolutely critical. Mm-hmm. Um, when you know, when you're sort of looking at some of these organisations, whether it's the NBA, whether it's um, you know golf, what are some of the, I, I guess the the similarities that help people to be successful in in whatever discipline it is they're pursuing? Are, are, are there some things that you see again and again, regardless of of whether it's business, sport, the type of sport? Yeah, one of the differentiators, and I'm going to use a, a well-known team, I can't share the name with you, from the Premier League in England, um, is, is courage. Um, the courage to make a mistake, the courage to try something new. Uh, many people, they get seduced by being successful, and they don't want to change that. People who are consistently successful recognize that I've got to change. If I do the same thing next year I did this year, the competition's going to swamp me. So let me share a story with you. This happened just three weeks ago. I was contacted by a very, very well-known Premier League team uh, who was very successful for a long time. And when their coach retired, they were trying to find a replacement coach. And they kept thinking what I call inside the box. First of all, they they were only going to hire somebody they were familiar with. And how often does that happen in business? If I don't know this person, I'm not going to take a risk on them. Right. Secondly, they were only going to hire people who had coached in the Premier League. Well, anybody who's been very successful and is looking to move is probably, they're not going to move. Um, so you're probably going to get somebody that's been with two or three clubs. And this, is, this happens in all professional sports. Two or three clubs, but was never really successful in any of them. So why do you think this person's going to be successful here? So what I said is, why not look for a highly successful person There's two characteristics here. One is success, a highly successful person at a lower level. And immediately one of the people said, oh, no, we could never do that because um, our reputation would be tarnished by looking too. our standards would be too low. And I said, no, you're trying to hire a successful football coach. You need somebody with a proven track record. Athletes are basically the same. The only difference is some of them are a little faster. Some of them have high, higher skill levels. But basically, you're talking about the same people, and they coach people. So get somebody that knows how to be successful coaching football, not football in the Premier League necessarily. Second characteristic, do they have the same corporate values that you have? Because oftentimes what happens is, and you know this, they bring in a coach whose values really don't correspond to the organization or correspond to the players. And there's immediately and consistent conflicts. And so if you and I are going to work together, Alex, we have to share some sense of values, some sense of ethics, some sense of aspiration. And so I was, this was the second point I was trying to make with this club. I, I really don't think they're going to follow my advice. 
which <laughs> all, and but here's and and this doesn't bring me any joy at all. But I don't think they're going to be successful in the next five or ten years. Um, you know, they're going to keep hiring people who um, everybody, every other team in the Premier League would be trying to hire. Really, really fascinating. I, and I think um, I think again, it's a really good example of as exactly as you said, when people get successful, they're less likely to you know, either take risks or, or, or even, you know, in, in that circumstance, it's maybe not a risk, but it's mm-hmm. perceived um, almost, you know, they're being judged by their fans or their board or whoever mm-hmm. it is. Exactly. Um, which, which is fascinating. And, and those kind of cognitive biases are, are, are actually holding people back from that success. Um, yeah. When you think about, for example, Steve Jobs, um, mm. you know, when they started Apple Computer, it was a computer company. But then when he left and then he came back, it was no longer a computer company. You know, he, he developed a little thing called the iPhone, you know, and it wasn't based on any marketing research. Um, long story short, I had an um, odd opportunity to meet Steve Jobs. We spent an afternoon together. Oh, wow. Yeah. I don't know if you re- recall, Alex, but he one time was fired by Apple. Yes. Did you know that? And he spent about five years with another company called Next Computer, and then ha- Apple hired him back. Well, I was at the University of Oregon, which is on the West Coast, and Jobs was driving from his his town in Cupertino, California, up to Portland, Oregon. And he was stopping along the way to try to sell the next computer at universities. So I heard he was going to be there. And I thought, you know, basically a, a innovator, genius guy, Macintosh computer had been invented. So I walk in and he was all alone. Nobody else was talking to him because I later found out from the techies is they considered him a pariah. He was yesterday's news. He, nobody wanted anything to do with Steve Jobs. Apple had fired him. He was gone. History. I'm thinking, what a great opportunity. So we had an opportunity to talk. And he asked me this question, Alex. And at the time, I didn't realize how profound it was. He said, do you know the difference between Bill Gates and myself? And I wanted to say, Gates has a job. But <laughs> I, I bit my tongue. And uh, Steve Jobs, by the way, was kind of, if you were having a conversation, Alex, with him, you would not have to worry about what you were going to say. <laughs> he had no problem talking. Uh, he said, Bill Gates believes people need to adapt to technology. And I believe technology needs to adapt to people. And when you think about it, that's exactly what the iPhone was, right? It's, it's people need to make a phone call. People need to get on their internet. People love to listen to music. So let's invent something based on the technology we have that meet these people's needs. Rather than here's the technology, let's force feed it down everybody's throat. Um, So I thought that was a a brilliant point that he was making about who are your clients and how do you best serve them? And Alex, wouldn't you agree the best leaders, that's what they're thinking about. And they look at their, by the way, their employees as their, Mm. uh, as their clients too, because if I'm, if I work for you, Alex, you want me to be happy because if I'm happy working for you, A, I'm going to be loyal and stay with you. B, I'm going to work harder. And C, I'm going to have greater satisfaction in what I do. And rather than disgruntled employee. So I really do think one of the things that separates the truly great business leaders is that they're, they know, they understand who they are, A, as people, and B, they understand who the clients are they're trying to serve. I mean, what, what a fantastic story. And, and you know, it, it kind of you know, leads me on to my next question quite nicely, which is, from you know some of the amazing teams and people and individuals that you've worked with, mm-hmm. what are some of 
what are some of the things that make them different from other people in terms of, you know, being, we, we hear about the term outlier and how they do things differently. They look at things differently. We, we, we've touched on how mm-hmm. people perceive kind of failure, you know, or success, or they might be lifelong learners, but, but is there anything else that, that has yes. sort of stood out to you? Yeah. I'm, and we didn't talk about this, but I'm glad you asked. One of our most recently published studies, it was with uh, head strength and conditioning coaches, you know, the people who do the fitness for major league baseball, uh, the National Football League, uh, the National Hockey League, and the National Basketball Association. And we had all of the uh, coaches agree to participate in this study with the exception of just three. And one of the questions we asked them, Alex, Alex was differentiate. You're going to love this one. Differentiate the expert or the successfully, consistently successful coach from the average coach at the highest level. And and I was floored by the response and it was almost universal. The number one skill was humility. That's what I said. And then I thought, first of all, is humility really a skill? And again, you and I were talking about these soft skills because I'm thinking, isn't that a personality trait? So I made a few phone calls to these coaches and I said, do you mind telling me why you rated humility so high. And they said, first of all, humility is about being open to new ideas. If you're not humble, you're not willing to learn. Humility allows you to learn. And then this, I said, well, is it a skill? And they said, absolutely, because you learn to be humble. And they said almost every great coach they knew didn't start out humble. And they told me the opposite of humility is arrogant. And they said, if you see an arrogant person, they're never going to be highly successful, at least not for in the long term, and they're never going to help anybody else be successful. So the great coaches, number one skill is humility. Now, can I ask you, Alex, as somebody who studies leadership, what's your reaction to that? I personally was surprised. So what's your... I- uh, it's, it's very interesting. I, I am, and I think most people would be, but I would also say that some of the most fantastic leaders that I, and, and I think this is the reason it's surprising actually to most people is that, you know, a lot of the, the leaders that I have worked with who are just absolutely fantastic. And, and I'm sure that this is probably similar to yourself, Paul, they, you know, a lot of them are very humble to the point where they go actually unrecognized for their ability. Um, yes. And, mm-hmm. you know, certainly when I worked in surgery, some of the and, and, and this oh, is a very po- positive yes. thing in, in uh, medicine, actually, which is in the mm-hmm. UK, um, the, the, the trainees or the surgeons who were, who were still learning, um, there were a few quite sort of high profile awards where they would um, basically vote for the, the, the surgeons that they had worked with because surgery is very much like an apprenticeship. Um, who were the you know the best trainers or the most impactful or the best mm. leaders, and that was the way that a lot of these folks were recognised. But at the same time, I, I know having sat on some of those committees that there were people who actually turned down those awards, and and they were unbelievably good. And I think um, that often is why that skill of humility doesn't get talked about enough, in my opinion. I, I, I don't know what your experiences are of that, Paul, from your interviews. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Alex. Thank you for sharing that, because that was my thought, too. And you mentioned earlier, you know, some of these coaches were National Football League coaches. When you think of these, are, and they were all male, because that's that was the nature of the sport at the time. Uh, these hurly-burly guys that are so tough and so demanding and, and humility... And yeah, that's what it was. And that's what they said. That differentiates the truly great coaches from the good ones. And, and I think it's, it's also a great point um, because 
you know, talking about is humility a skill or, or is it a trait? And, and you know, if we think about the, the exact opposite uh, skill or trait that, that you mentioned, which is arrogance, uh, and often, you know, we, we talk anecdotally about arrogant people being knocked down to size is often, mm-hmm. the, you know, the colloquial phrase that, that people use. And, you know, certainly if someone is, is incredibly arrogant, either in sports, uh, you know, boxing is a good one where, uh, you know, part of selling a boxing event is obviously everyone thinks right. they're going to win and, and they, right. they talk and talk and talk and then someone has to lose and, and that's the same in business it's the same in anything and one of you know going back to what you said at the beginning of, of people focusing on having that growth mindset on learning mm-hmm. if people are arrogant and they get not, and they do get knocked down to size they lose then i think that is that's kind of how those types of people learn humility um, mm-hmm. because for others, you know, th- that's obviously a very personal and <laughs> probably very effective yeah. way to learn humility, yeah. but for others, you can observe that from happening or you can, you can, you can learn about the power of it from, you know, listening secondhand to things like this podcast, but, right. um, for, for, you know, j- just flipping, flipping it back to, to your research again, Paul, but mm-hmm. th- that again is an experience that someone has been through where they've, mm-hmm. they've, they've gone through that very personal experience, almost yes. like anecdotally, right. um, what are some of the ways that people can maximize those learning opportunities? Do you think to, to really kind of accelerate how they learn any of these skills we've touched on? Okay. Um, can I answer that question with a story? Please do. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I know this is very um, American centric, but uh, are you familiar with the football player, uh, American football player named Tom Brady? Um, one of the teams that I had the opportunity to work with their coaching staff was the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And Tom had been traded from the New England Patriots, where he'd been for 20 years, to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. The day before the training camp was supposed to open, I was talking with one of the coaches. And he said, he asked me this question. He said, what do I tell Tom Brady? I mean, this guy has six championship rings. Um, I don't know what I'm going to be able to say to him. And the gentleman's name was Roger. And I said, Roger, you, you'll just need to prove to Tom that you can help him perform at a better level. And he said, well, how do I do that? I said, just listen to him because he'll tell you if you just ask him questions, ask him questions about, and you put it in your own terms, what do you need? What's going to make you a better football player tomorrow than you are today? What are some of the questions that you have in mind? And as he gives you those answers, that is what's going to open your your door to being able to help him perform at a higher level. And that's what a coach does. That's what a business leader does, right? So I talked to Roger two, two weeks later, and he told me Brady, and I said, what's it like to coach Tom Brady? And this comes to humility. Brady, highly successful. In fact, most people here in the United States call him, his nickname's the GOAT, G-O-A-T, greatest of all time. He said, Brady came into camp, training camp, like he was a rookie trying to make the team. He was the first one there every morning and usually the last one to leave. No one worked harder in practice than he did. And he would be so supportive of his teammates. If somebody else showed a little extra effort, he would, he would congratulate him. If anybody had a question and came up to him and said, Tom, you know, when you were in this situation, how did you handle? He said he would give them all the time in the world. Again, talk about humility, right? And Roger said, I, I asked him why he had that attitude. And he said, I'm one player on this team. We have to, we win as a team and I have to realize what my role is here. And I, I you know, nobody's going to outwork me. Now let's go back. Uh, no, let's continue that story. Again, humility. 
they weren't successful the first couple of games. In fact, I think they lost two of their, their first three football games. And Roger told me that after the second loss, uh, normally what happens after a game is the players go into the locker room and they, they shower, train, uh, dress, and whatever, talk to the press. And the coaches go into a room and immediately start debriefing. What did we do right? What do we need to change? How are we going to change this, this and that? And Roger said, we just closed the door and there was a knock on the door. And one of the coaches opened it up is Tom Brady, still sweating, still in his grass-stained uniform. And Tom said, would you excuse me? I have a question for you. And so they invited him into the room. And Tom looked at Roger said, Tom looked at all the coaches and he said, you have to help me understand what I need to do to help this team win. So think about that. If you know of something that will allow me to help this team better than I'm doing it right now, please tell me. And he left, showered, and so forth. How many, I mean, again, this is a superstar in the industry saying to the coaches, help me to be better at what I do. Let's work together as a unit. So when we talk about people who are highly successful, top performers, that's what they're looking for. And they understand the fundamentals of what it takes to be successful. And generally, ego is not part of it. Um, you know, it's, it's about what do I need to do? How do I need to learn? And when I fail... I particularly am motivated to move forward. Amazing! What, what a what an amazing story to, uh, mm-hmm. to you know pull out so many great traits there. And I think that's again applicable to not just sports but anyone in business as well. You know, if you're right. a leader, you mm-hmm. should be uh, you know not just asking the people you work with, but you know your customers and, and anybody else. What can we do to kind of serve you? What can we do to get better? Yeah, um, on on a regular basis. You know, but very similar to what Steve Jobs was. was talking mm-hmm. about in, in terms of the technology meeting the customer's needs. And I wonder if, you know, when we think about some great football players too, I know David Beckham had kind of his persona or whatever, but, but I always got a sense that he was very dedicated to his team uh, and mm. to his mates and, and whatever we need to do to work better together. I see that with Lionel Messi as well. Um, and it's not just there. I mean, think about some of the sports where England's really great, particularly in the Olympics. Crew, I mean, talk about teamwork synchronization, talking about how we need to work together in very trying circumstances. I mean, those athletes work harder, I think, than any other athletes on the planet. Uh, And it's usually uh, uh, not in most comfortable circumstances. They're out early in the morning when it's freezing cold and it's raining. And I mean, I don't have to tell you how awful the weather can be in England. You know, (laughs) they're out there doing what they need to do to be successful and working and helping one another. Well, I think, you know, that, that's, a, that's a great sentiment to, to begin to sort of wrap things up on, because mm-hmm. I think, you know, that, that practice and teamwork and camaraderie through adversity is, is often what kind of defines, you know, yes. really, really powerful teams and, and mm-hmm. those team bonds. Um, but Paul, you know, I, I think <laughs> anyone listening probably knows that I could talk to you probably all day and most of <laughs> next week as well, but um, we'll, we'll, um, we'll, we'll try and give some people back the, the, their time. But, uh, you know, just before we sort of close things down, it'd be great to know, you know, from all the people you've interviewed and, and and all the people you've actually kind of interacted in your own life as well who has been sort of someone who's kind of inspired you on your own journey who is your kind of human performance hero I, I would have to say it was an American college football coach uh his name's Bobby Bowden he just recently passed away uh he was at Florida State University won several national championships and oftentimes and Alex you know this from meeting some of these people we often think these superstar heroes whatever you want to call have some kind of extraordinary human presence. Usually they don't. Again, let's go back to humility. And Bobby was like that. Bobby 
was very driven to make his players highly successful. One of the things he told me is when we win, it's because the players executed. I thought, okay. And I said, what about when you lose? He says, when we lose, and I thought this was brilliant, Alex. He said, I didn't have my people prepared to be successful. And that's on me as a coach. And so as a teacher, business leader, consultant, whatever I do, a speaker, I do a lot of um, speaking engagements. Uh, that's the way I begin to think about it. If they don't get the message, is it because they were too thick? No, it was because I didn't deliver it in a way that they could get it. And so it's not about us, it's about them and, and helping those people to be successful. And I thought that inspired me in so many ways to be better at what I am, to help people develop in ways that allow them to be as good as they could be. So yeah, Coach Bowden. What a, what a fantastic example um, mm -hmm. to end things on. Uh, Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Um, if anyone wants to uh, to find out a little bit more or dive into your research or, or find out any of the work that you're doing with businesses, where can they go to do so? Okay. Uh, I have a website. It's www.allonewordperformancemattersinc.com. Performancemattersinc.com. And my contact information is on there. They can email me. I've got articles. And in fact, I just published a blog um, this morning while we were waiting called What Leaders Can Do to Limit Turnover and Increase Retention. So, um, and it's all research based, uh, but I try to write it in a way that's digestible. Um, and so, yeah, performancemattersinc.com. Alex, thank you for this opportunity. It's been great talking with you. And I know this won't be the last time that we, you and I have a conversation. No, absolutely. It's been an absolute pleasure. And um, yeah, we'll have to have you on again very, very soon to talk about some more topics. Thank you so much.